Hi, I'm Linus Sangren. I'm the director of photography on No Time to Die, and this is the Go Creative Show. Hello, and welcome to the Go Creative Show, a podcast for filmmakers. My name is Ben Consoli, and today we speak with Linus Sandgren, the director of photography for No Time to Die. Linus, thank you for uh, joining us today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm very excited to talk to you about the film. It was awesome, and I got an advanced screening a couple weeks before release, which is always so much fun. Um, but I absolutely loved it and cannot wait to dive in. But before we get there, very quickly, I want to mention the sponsor for today's episode, MZ Empowering Filmmakers. Of course, follow us on your favorite podcast app, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. And go to uh, gocreativeshow.com for all things Go Creative Show. So, Linus, um, first of all, what a fun film to be part of. You, oh. you're, probably, you're probably so psyched that it's finally out. Oh, I feel so like much. <laughs> We've been, wait, we've been waiting, yeah, we've been waiting. It's been dreadful to wait, but uh, no, I'm so happy that people get to see it now. It was such a joy to make. It's a very fun project. Are you the type of person that if you have too much time in between when it's finished and when it's released, you keep going back and thinking, ah, maybe I should have done this, I should have done that. Do you second guess yourself at all when you have so much of a mm. time span? I don't know. I, I think we were pretty happy with the film. I mean, we were really happy with the film, Um we didn't do anything to it actually after it was finished, um, even though there was time after. But no, I don't, I don't know. I don't think so. I think you have to be happy with what you've done, you know. And and you you always have, I think, some percentage that is going to be have been compromised, you know, on any project. It's like it it can never. It's really really rare that you feel like hundred percent or the film is hundred percent. It's like usually there's always compromises. That's sort of part of part of the filmmaking, I think. Yeah. And the compromises, I think, can can give an even better result sometimes. At least totally. I find that in my own work. Yeah, you learn from it, too. I think you learn to, um, you know, you totally learn from uh, from your mistakes and from how you can do it next time. And, and also, some people may not even find it as compromises, you know. So, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And now you're, I mean, when you join onto a film like this, it's a gigantic worldwide franchise that everybody has an expectation of mm. when they watch it. How do you prepare? And in a, in a, in a article you did for the Hollywood reporter, you discussed the idea of finding the soul of bond. And yeah. I'm curious about that. I, I want to learn a little bit more into what was your process for finding it? And also what did you find? <laughs> um, I think, I mean, we discussed a lot about, um, you know, making, uh, or, or basically what is the solo bond? Yeah. I think the solo bond is something where you have to go back to your teenage years as well. And, and think about how you saw the films at, at different ages as well. And, uh, to me, the, the core sort of, of bond is something where it's, um, you know, it is a, an adventure, obviously, um, just my, like many other films that you, usually really get attracted to in the teenage years, but you can enjoy as an adult as well, because you have still perhaps teenage, a teenager in you or something, but it, it should, it should really give, give you that, right. The, the, the sort of adventure uh, joy of watching it and have all kinds of um, um, ingredients from that. Right. But um so that I think was a lot of it was discussions around that to go back to like how 
how can we make this and, and you know and really enchanting interesting journey uh, for everybody uh, and you had the, and you also had the unique challenge of in addition to just jumping onto a, a franchise like you know James Bond 007 this is also the last film with Daniel Craig so there's a lot of attention paid to it and it's sort of the completion of this character so did that impact the way that you thought about this film at all um I don't think the fact that it was his last film, other than that the story obviously was um, based on very much concluding or wrapping up um, Daniel Craig's character. So in in the writing, I think a lot of that came through. Uh, and then for us working with the story, um, it's, it's, it's like always you, you work with the story um, that you have and try to find the language for yourself for... Uh, how do we, you know, uh, express this film? How do we, how, how do we um, visualize it? And um, and you have to just go back to the script, really, normally. And and in this case, uh, we talked a lot about just creating that um, the, the dramatic journey that had to do with 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 the sort of the core story of 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 doing uh, Daniel Craig's Bond, um, finalizing his uh, journey, but also obviously in this film. Uh, it centered a lot about uh, his emotional journey as uh, as a character, and uh, with his story being more driven by, I think, his own sort of heart than his, um, uh, you know, um, what do you call it, like mission or whatever from from uh, MI6 or from the government. But it's more about like driven by his heart, I think, um, and therefore we we integrated a lot more about. Um, emotions in the film but also some sort of melancholic uh, tone to it knowing it was going to be his last film yeah so a lot of that was part of it and i think we just wanted to sort of paint the brush strokes really broad and and go like very far to each end of the spectrum when we sort of uh, designed all these different environments for him to to go through you know what is your prep process like? I mean, do you do a really in-depth storyboarding or visual con- concepting prior to a film like this? We had a lot of, uh, had lots of combinations of um, strategies for, 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 I mean, a lot of sort of research going into uh, trying to figure out on an early point, what can we, where can we bring it and how, uh, where can we bring the story? Where do we go? Um, if, if, we know we're going to be in Norway in this ice cold environment, looking for references, images that could describe that. How would I want to visualize that? And I presented to Carrie and together with you know production designer, we're we're working ourselves slowly through the looks of the film. When it comes to um, the storyboarding, it could be like certain sequences obviously needs. Um, to be uh, planned in very uh, high detail. So we had combinations of, for action sequences or where it was very technical with special effects, we would do uh, storyboards and we would do uh, animatics and we could do uh, models and even like um, miniatures and actually miniatures uh, that could move or uh, it was kind of intricate, different uh, ways of, of just getting each department to work together. And from from my point of view, for the lighting and for that stuff of of, of the 
of the creation of the lighting. And uh, we worked a lot with actually models and tried also lighting uh, uh, on models, on, on miniatures, you know, for the sets that we were building. But, so you're um, not talking about like 3D modeling. You're talking about no, physical like, yeah. miniatures and lighting. That's yeah, yeah. kind of interesting. Yeah. I don't think I, I don't no, no, think yeah. I I think that's kind of an interesting approach. And is this typical for you in your workflow, or is this something you employed just for this film? No, but I like to do that. I mean, uh, I think we work with that quite a bit. You know, like that um, art department builds miniatures that are usually in cardboard, you know, that, that are just a set so we could visualize it. You can go in there with a little iPhone or look at like people at the correct heights and see where things are. And we would do that for seeing sort of depth of sets before they built them, right? That's like how we, they like to present those models oftentimes. And and um, but I also used them for lighting. Like there was, for example, one set at Safin's uh, island. You know that whole sequence. His island is ver- a lot of that. Like most of that is shot in pine wood. You know, stage. And yeah, uh, we discussed whether we should do that exterior garden if we should shoot that outdoors because it's an outdoor set. But we also wanted that whole sequence for. Uh, th- as a theme to be uh, in uh, sunset, you know, going from late afternoon sun into sunset for the theme of that sort of sequence was, um, was very much lit that way. And, um, and so controlling the light, I felt like ideally we should build that on stage if we could. And it was just that the set was huge. So we needed a stage that fit that set. So they, Mm. they built, we tested, you know, they built um, these, um, this model and, we tested ways of lighting that to create, to fit a sun in there. And that was like very much thanks to the model that we could test with a light source and see if we could, you know, find a way to open up that set in order to get the light in the right way. And, and that way you become more sort of prepared and economical, I guess, on the, on the day two, if you, if you um, do that and, and you can read them, you can very much, you know, Visualize it, doing it with your eyes and see it and try different. It's quick, you know, it's quite easy to. I'm getting really into just like personally with my the my work with BC Media Productions. I do commercial work and stuff like that. But I'm becoming more and more obsessed with the previs process because it just, yeah, you have to invest in it a little bit. But I found it to be, it really opens up a lot of opportunities that you may not discover on set because you just don't have the time. And I found that I've really enjoyed that process. Are you seeing more and more people, cinematographers, taking advantage of doing like 3D renderings of sets, using Cinema 4D, that sort of stuff? Are you seeing that more? I mean, we also had a lot of um, um, 3D. Oh, were you talking about like set, for setting up shots and stuff? Like, yeah, like doing yeah. like like you were doing with the miniatures, but creating mm. that in 3D space so that you can sort of you know almost virtually scout a location that you build in 3D. Right. I'm I'm getting much more into that, and I'm yeah. curious if people at your level are doing that as well. No, definitely. I mean, we did that too. We we did that uh, on Bond as well. Um, there's there were sets that were built, many sets were built in uh, 3D models uh, in computer as well, and we we could scout the sets with the camera in there and walk around and 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 sort of visualize it that way too. So it was a it was, it was that, that's a really useful tool too, especially. Um, when 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 you can do it live and you're just like walking around in that set in 3D, you, we even had it with 3D goggles, uh, so we could stand in the set and look around. Um, oh, that's awesome. 
Yeah, it was great. I mean, when you have time to build the sets uh, like that and you have like the resources that 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 we did a lot of times as well. So there were many we had multiple uh, ways of um, preparing for different types of scenes for different Sometimes I didn't feel uh, the need of going into the sets in those 3D environments uh, like that, but um, for some we did, and, and for others, I think for lighting that wasn't really. Uh, you, I don't think that really works so easily yet to test lighting uh, in 3D modeling. What I know, I don't know if you know, uh, but um, you can obviously do it. it. It's just I guess you need some render time and stuff to see it exactly properly, but to get um, sometimes it's, it's easier. You're like in, in a room and you have a model and you can be 10 people around the model and look at it. It's a physical, if it's a physical model. And when you're in a computer, you can sit next to one or two persons and we can look together and yeah. one person moves the, the thing around, you know, the mouse around, but, uh, no, there's, we, we had all, all kinds of versions and, uh, there was like 3d, uh, rendered animatics and there were, uh, also just 2d flat, um, animations that we also did for other sequences. So we had uh, multiple ways of testing. Um, we tested also, we tested a lot of things, uh, tested camera movements, you know, and we tested underwater uh, camera track. Uh, we tested, you know, cameras mounted on motorcycles and how can we drive through narrow streets in Matera? There's all kinds of yeah, testing going imagine. on, you know. Yeah. Well, let's talk about the camera package you ultimately chose. Um, I know it's a little bit of a mix. You've got some IMAX in there. You have some Panavision cameras in there. Talk to me about what you ended up choosing and why. Yeah, so um, we kind of felt right away, me and Kerry, that um, Bond lives naturally in Anamorphic 35. Um, that is sort of what we felt is part of the soul of the Bond movies. But... Um, Kerry was so much into, you know, maximizing everything. Like he wanted to, um, to, to make the sets larger than we could build them. And he always wanted like to just maximize. He, he pushed us always to like, oh, let's see what we could do if we maximize. So part of that uh, philosophy then included trying to see if we could actually shoot uh, some sequences in, uh, in IMAX um, to really be like, you know, like you, you have the 240 uh, in the movie theater, but, in some sequences, it could be nice, like you're watching it in, in an IMAX theater, then you would like, the, the image would just drop below your uh, below your audience in front of you and and you're even more engulfed in the scene. So we took that as, um, uh, we, we got our opportunity to do it and and, uh, and we felt like that could be really important for the whole opening sequence to to do that. So that's like one of those things that felt like we could, maximize the experience for the audience, really. Um, what was so, your experience like with IMAX? It was interesting because uh, I had shot with it before when we did um, uh, First Man a little bit, and um, they are big, you know, and heavy, really heavy cameras. Um, uh, I think they're about like 80, 90 pounds, you know? Mm. And um, at first you think that would be complicated. Like you can put them on helicopters, obviously, you can put them on, uh, arm cars, motion, you know, that kind of things and dollies. And, um, but they're, they are trickier to put on Steadicam or like handheld or, 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 uh, you know, drones or so. 
and and we we chose environments that were like, for example, Matera was a complicated environment to begin with, just to move a camera through those environments fast. Yeah. It's, it's yeah. tricky. So so that was part of it. But we learned actually as we started to work with them that they're pretty practical. Like they're really? all they're, they're very you know they're boxy, so they're like square. And because they're boxy, they actually fit through a window easily on a car, while another camera would be like having the mag stick up. So you would have to have a special mag or, not, you know. Yeah. So there's actually situations where they were pretty practical. The lenses go to like T2, 2.8. We shot 2.8 all night. Um, and then the mags, doesn't they don't last that long. Like a thousand footer is like two and a half minutes, I think, or three minutes. So they're pretty short mags and in the beginning it was trickier you know like for all everybody everybody worked around it you know you have um everyone is not familiar with it to begin with so but um pretty quickly we 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 took them you know we started to take them underwater and we took them on handheld we worked much more handheld with them Hmm. so yeah so i I really liked it you know it's interesting to hear you say that they're practical because um, I mean, I have no experience with them. We've talked a little bit about them on the show with other DPs, yeah. but it, the consensus seems to be that it's it's a little bit more challenging than expected. And it's interesting to see that you you sort of had the reverse. Maybe you went into it with a, a, a deeper, a different expectation. I mean, we had them for a while too to prep properly, and <clears throat> I think being you know we we thought at first like how fast can we reload them you know and and there, there was a, we had people with us that could reload them pretty quickly so we took that as a challenge on the camera crew as well to learn you know to do that fast and and i think um we definitely didn't use them handled in the beginning but because we got more comfortable with them we started to so towards the end the last things we're shooting is cuba sequence in hand and we shot so much handheld there you know, we, we had planned shooting that on dolly, dollies with the uh, remote heads. And um, how and come it changed? We wanted it to be more handheldy feel to it. And so we had learned that we could do it. So <laughs> we just did it. And how then, are you? How are you rigging these IMAXs handheld? Just took them on the shoulder. Yeah. But, oh, we a 90, a 90, pound, yeah. 90 pound camera on the shoulder. Wow. Mm. Well, I guess with each mag only being two minutes, it's. You're not, you know, you're not time. rolling yeah. with, yeah, you're not rolling with it, it for was hours. Tough. But. It was obviously very tough on the camera crew, but, but, um, I mean, it, it did work actually. It wasn't that, it wasn't that hard. I mean, it was hard. It was hard for them, but it, <laughs> yeah, you, you weren't know, the one holding that camera. <laughs> no, but it was hard, but it was, it, I, I, I think they would say the same thing. They, they would say it's like, it was actually fun. It was fun. Yeah. We knew what images we got out of it, and it was like quite exciting to get it on that large negative. You know, it's like so big. But yeah, I imagine yeah. it gives you some freedom too, just yeah. being handheld, not constrained to a dolly or a crane or anything. It's yeah, it's kind of nice and also fun to explore. You know, like with the with with a stunt team and a special effects team to get on a film like this, you get the resources to do proper testing beforehand. You know, so we we did a lot of that. You know, and and um, and mounted them on, on we, we found a way to mount them on uh, motocross, like what do you call them, uh, dirt bikes. Yeah. So we could, you know, drive through uh, the alleys, narrow alleys on dirt bikes and so oh on. Oh my so. God. Let's take a quick break and talk about our sponsor for today's episode, MZ Empowering Filmmakers. MZ, M-Z-E-D. Now you want to think about MZ as the Netflix 
for filmmaking education. And that's because when you become an MZ Pro member, you get access to hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hours of high-quality video-based filmmaking education and all the topics that we need to know here at Go Creative Show, like directing, cinematography, post-production, visual storytelling, and more. You can find all of that at gocreativeshow.com forward slash MZ, M-Z-E-D. But let's talk about the courses because they have such a variety of different courses on MZ. Just a couple to note, one of their more recent ones, Indie Film Blueprint. It's a roadmap for how to plan, shoot, and sell your first indie feature. So that is exactly what we need to know. And of course, there's a new course on advanced editing in uh, DaVinci Resolve and the art and technique of filmmaking, which is another, uh, I'm sorry, the art and technique of film editing, which is another great editing course um, by Tom Cross, who is the editor of La La Land and No Time to Die, the two films that our guest today shot, or two of the films that our guest today shot. Um, But there's so much more over there. And my point is, that it's not just interesting courses, it's also educators that you know that are A-listers that are working at a really high level. For instance, Tom Cross, like we mentioned before, Vincent LaFray, Shane Hurlbut, Philip Bloom, it goes on and on and on. You can get 20% off your purchase by using GCS20 at checkout, GCS20. And um, that is on whether you get an MZ Pro membership, which I highly recommend, or you just buy individual courses, which you can as well. But it's all there at gocreativeshow.com forward slash MZ, M-Z-E-D, M-Z, empowering filmmakers. That that pre-credit scene uh, at the beginning of the film is just a, such a spectacle. The stunts are out of control. There's so much going on. But I think what's what's interesting about it, and this follows through the entire film, is that there's always it's always set in a reality of some sort. It's always grounded in some way, all of mm. these stunts. And I think that's a really tough thing to do. There are many films that we've all seen that the stunts take us out of the movie sometimes because they're so unrealistic. And I think, and it's not even the way it looks, it's just what happens. I think mm. you all did such a great job of making this film feel grounded and real. And I'm curious, is that something that, you sort of put out there as, you know, part of your particular style, what did you, what you wanted to bring to the film? Or was that across the board, uh, an initiative where people wanted it to feel as realistic as possible? Uh, it was mainly Carrie. Uh, I mean, I, I couldn't agree more though, <laughs> but, but I know Carrie was very, um, he, he, uh, that was a very strong opinion of, of his to begin with, to make sure that all the stunts that happen are both realistic and shouldn't be silly and being done in such a way that it it looks like it cannot happen for real. It has to look like it can happen for real. And ideally they should happen for real as well. He, he was very much into that whole philosophy of, of grounding it in reality because then it would feel more hard. And even though the film is an escapism and an adventure and larger than life, it still can happen. And because it can happen, that's sort of, Part of the soul of Bond, too, I think, is like, uh, I mean, Bond movies traditionally have been at least doing all the stunts uh, for real a lot of times. I mean, they, they really like making the, the things in camera, but but Kerry was very much into really grounding this into uh, reality, definitely. Yeah. And we, we all agreed, I mean, I, I, I totally think that is important, too, um, and, and especially you know, also thinking about it uh, from a from a storytelling point of view that that the it doesn't matter what you do 
you know where you put the camera uh, unless it's also grounded in the in, in the story in the emotions of the story it's like if you if you don't know that he is running for his life it's not as exciting to 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 go with him on a, on a jump you know or something but if we know that he's chased or that he needs to get away from something it it's more exciting obviously so and and each of these things is so much it's so much more important to follow the the story and to to make decisions from that point of view and that could be that you really want to be with bond in the shot and then suddenly you have you know suddenly you're in a position where you may not have thought you should be because you think that you have to do something dramatic with the camera or do something crazy with it but instead it's actually kind of straightforward you just follow the story and uh, what do you want to explore right now? Do you want to be with Bond or do you want to be away from Bond? You know, you, it's just like when you create any film, I think if you think about it in a dramatic way. Um, so, but that was the base of it, definitely, the, to, to ground everything in reality. I want to talk about the look of No Time to Die a little bit. You have so many different landscapes that you're in. You're Cuba, Italy, you've got ice scenes, you're on set. It's you're in studios. It's such a combination of things, but it does feel cohesive. And I know certainly some of that work is done in color, but there must be some strategies employed in your lighting and in your camera package and just in your technique to keep consistency across so many different looks. Can you talk to me about that? Yeah. Um, yeah, so exactly. No, but also, again, it, it's like it had to do with uh, creating a rich... Um, film that takes you all over the place it, it carry with that into the storyline that ideally we should go you know like as you know we go from something very icy and then we go to some uh, a sunset very romantic setting and that location was picked as well so that it could work both as a very romantic town and then suddenly change into something really um uh hard and, and brutal mm. um so and the looks uh, was very much planned out. Um, and part of our challenges was obviously that we we uh, we always set very specific uh, looks for, for for these different environments. So that, for example, the icy usually so that we enhance the dra drama in it, so that the icy location should feel really cold and icy. Yeah. And the challenge with that is obviously that if it's sunny and windy, it's hard to make it look icy and cold. <laughs> so we had those sort of weather challenges all the time to work with. And also um, part of my uh, way of working is to to create the images, you know, in camera and, and on a daily basis, Get when we get the dailies back, I want the film to look the way it looks uh, in in the final movie. I don't want to yeah. like change it in post or like go into color correction later, uh, not knowing what we're doing and like inventing something then. Mm. So, um, and that's part of why I like to work on film because it, it sort of adds, it enhances color. It adds sort of a little more impressionistic uh, effect to whatever lighting you do. Did you create LUTs for your, like, did you come in to come on set with custom LUTs ready to go? Um, so that you could be as accurate as possible? Yeah, so what you do when you work on film is more like <clears throat> you actually, you work with one project lot, right, uh, for the DI, which is, in our case, a lot that is basically a, a Kodak print emulation lot so that we can do a print. Um, and it's, 
it's it's that and slightly we ha- I've used it on like four movies now, but um, it's slightly um, wider white point than the film lot. But um, other than that, we apply that in the dailies, and in this case, I work with the same dailies colorist as as DI colorist. He, he's the same person, Matt Wallach. Oh, good. So, uh, and I had a relationship with him from previous movies um, on dailies, but. The thing is, it's is that I, you know, when when we when we, if we take it back to like the idea of going to different environments and the discussions with Carrie, and you want to go to, you know, this romantic setting in Matera, and then to a brutal sunny setting, it becomes very important. It became very important for us that we really worked with it in that way that we kept Matera uh, sunsetty and then later very sunny in order to make it look. Right, and, and in, in other situations like um, uh, Cuba, for example, we we wanted that to be night, but uh, the, the the most beautiful night we could think about in this case, or more, most sort of um, appropriate for a, a, an, an action uh, sequence there, going out on the ocean as well and being naturalistic, would to play it in twilight, so that you know when they also come out on that um, trawler it's all a sort of twilight rather than black nights. So if it yeah. would have been a black night, it would just have been a black ocean. But in this case, it's like a twilight ocean. So we paid a lot of, um, you know, uh, attention and work to to make sure that we shot, like that sequence we shot over like probably in total like six nights, just arriving at the boat or getting away from that uh, trawler and, and blowing the trawler up. Yeah, uh, That whole sequence is shot, you know, in camera looking, basically looking exactly like that, um, like it looks, right? So, but, and I love to work with color temperatures. So when we do lighting, I always light with the color temperatures um, in mind and oftentimes mixing color temperatures so that in order to create more depth. So in a film like this, uh, specifically, uh, for example, in the like break-in scene of the lab, um, we, we decided that it would be, interesting to go from the title sequence into a night because you could be or like a really early morning or really late um, evening and and again not have a black sky but like a purpley sky and then inside um, going from that purple to green or cyan um, shifting to cyan into a yellow you know yellow and cyan lab that later than shutting off the lights it remains yellow in the in, in the lab <clears throat> Those sort of color combinations we thought of ahead of time and, and lit the sets that way in order to create an interesting environment that knowing what we were going to cut to or cut from, you know, so. Yeah, and, and, um, and you know, real life has many different color temperatures. So, I mean, I think what, what you're doing is making Nothing it interesting, is... but you're, you're also making it realistic. Exactly, yeah. Um, I think... It's always based on reality. So it, it's sort of the idea was that each environment he goes to should be able to exist. It's like realistic, but it may be kind of perfect, <laughs> a perfect sunset or a, a light that just happens to be exactly taking place right in twilight or, but still you have those, uh, you have that light and that nature. So I like to, w- to work naturalistically, but um if a film like this could have more uh, noir to it, so you would shut off lights, so you would uh, work less frontlit and more backlit and, and more moody, 
but I like to um, use sort of the realistic uh, elements of, of reality. For example, fluorescent lights. There are cool white fluorescent lights that are cyan color when you uh, shoot them. So I like to work that way and, and like use that instead of white light. So, you know, what, what you learn in film school or whatever is usually that you should, you know, gel the windows so they match the tungsten lights inside and you get everything white. So that's sort yep. of the, the base of photography. <laughs> but I think uh, I always break those rules and think it's better to use the real, realistic lighting, but you have to decide which ones you keep and which ones to get rid of. And for this film to become a dramatic journey, it also needed to become a colorful journey. And and so we very much uh, specifically designed uh, scenes to be in, in specific lighting conditions and, and we lit those sets <clears throat> to look uh, the way we wanted to. And there were obviously huge challenges with that, especially for uh, exteriors or, or uh, real locations like we couldn't like be in Jamaica by his house and it wasn't like nice light. It couldn't be just a boring gray day. So we had to yeah. wait for light sometimes to, to make, uh, to, it was important to make that work, you know, but we had challenges also like, like, uh, when we shot the foggy forest, for example, we, we had to have so many foggers to keep, you know, keep it foggy because it was very windy those days. Ah. Um, so it's like, it's those kind of things, but it was, Deliberate choices for the story to be different from before, but also in combination with what would fit, you know, that part of the story. Like with the foggy forest, it was sort of convenient for them to be able to hide, but also it was spooky. And what would you say is the most challenging scene in the film? I don't know. It's hard because it feels like we <laughs> we it was always <clears throat> we always pushed the limits. It feels like so. So it's also so long ago for you guys, but still, exactly. I'm just curious. I don't know. I mean, it's it's always a puzzle, you know, with longer scenes. Like that whole Cuba sequence was a long puzzle of combining shots from Jamaica with shots from London, from uh, water tanks that we built. I mean, amazing, like special effects crew, Chris Corbalt and his crew built this like um, trawler rig to descend underwater and shoot underwater there and we built it actually early on and we were going to shoot there early on after we came back from jamaica and then we had challenges with you know like both that daniel got had to do an operation on his foot which changed the alter the schedule so we had to push that scene that was already built and set a huge huge metal like weird rotisserie rig uh, thing in a big underwater pool and we had to take it out from the uh, from the studio in order to shoot that later when he was fit to do that scene oh, it's such a heartbreaker yeah. to hear that it's like but, the, but then we we instead had to go in into that pool and shoot underwater shots with um, with a little girl under the ice and with ice that they had uh, you know kept from the winter in order to shoot in the pool later wow. so we, we had cut out ice that we could like put into the pool and shoot underwater shots so it was like, it was, uh, with IMAX cameras, <laughs> it was like, <laughs> so it was lots of like challenges like that. It was just both logistical, but also that everything was taken just a step further, you know, like from a normal scene. Another challenge was obviously in Matera that you, ha you have an action sequence that you put in a town that's not practical to actually drive in at all. Yeah. And, and, um, 
and and that was obviously visually interesting that it was a very dangerous town to drive fast in but uh to plan that with like i think they had two exits to the town you could come in from one and go out on the other but it wasn't like many roads going into the village so you had to you know, only enter from two sides or maybe three, but I think it was like two sides. So it was a complicated, logistically complicated town. And then we we found that the lighting in the town was not the way I wanted it for the night scene. So we turned off all the practical lights that we saw in those night shots and and uh, and did our own lighting in the village uh, and spread out, you know, uh, sky panels all over the town, controlled that we could create sort of this flame effect of of them because they had burning flames out there. And yeah, yeah. Yeah, so we did. We just sort of um, had to do it a little bigger, everything. And I guess for everybody, it was, it was challenges like that. You know, you had to have hundreds of people helping, uh, just uh, locking up traffic or... Well, that was sort of in line with the last question I had because I know we're running out of time. Um but I'm just curious, I mean, when you join a project like this, it's a massive, massive undertaking, a huge film. Was it your biggest film, budget-wise, to date? <clears throat> yeah. So you go into something like this, your biggest film. Where uh, Are there challenges in showing restraint when you know you have resources well beyond what you're used to? D- does it become a situation where you have to stop yourself from making it bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger just because you have to. Like, I can imagine that being challenging for you and the director is just knowing you have all these resources, but also not wanting to do so much that you sort of lose track of the initiative. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, but I think it's always the same. Really? It's like, yeah, because you always aim higher than you have budget for. (laughs) And then in this case, I think, I mean, it, it was a matter of like how many countries can we go to but he wrote the script so that he went to different countries i mean when they wrote the script they it was like restrictions there and then i mean you you kind of i I, I must say i'm very happy with how the production and how the producers worked with this film that they were very accommodating they really wanted also to do a lot in camera and and practically and and the way we sort of our methodology how we wanted to do things we were very much in sync and um, no, I think, I think you, you still feel like you, you, you aim, you know, like a little higher. I mean, no, most of the time though, we, we had really had what we wanted and we, we obviously, I was also like sometimes amazed how, what, how great resources we had for things, but it was just beautiful to be able to do things the way they should be done things were planned to be done in a certain way and we did it that way. It's not, it wasn't like any waste of money ever. It was always like still like restraints. Like we, we didn't have enough of the days that we really wanted to, you know, we, it's, it's always like some sort of like any film, like always um, some sort of compromises on the way. But, but um, it, it's incredible though, to be, to be, I feel very like happy that I, could be on a project where thinking about like an action sequence in Santiago de Cuba that practically would be impossible to shoot uh, for six weeks at night in any village or town. And then, then we're like able to build it on the back lot of, uh, of Pinewood, you know, like as a big, uh, 
basically a big outdoor backlot set that is equivalent of, of, of a studio permanent backlot, but here they build it temporarily for this movie. And it was like two stories with the rooftops and interiors we could go in and out of, and we, you know, we we could we could just design everything from scratch and and design the shots from scratch and design the lighting, everything from scratch. So those things are really, you know, amazing to be able to do. And Yeah, um, how do you go back to regular films after this? My God, it's like it, that the feeling of just being on a set like that must yeah. be so overwhelming that it's like, how do you even go back? No, but you 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 do that on other films too. It's just that the scale of it was bigger. So I think it's in, in relation to the film, it's just great that that this production actually uh, let us do it the the way that you should do it in a film. And on another film, you may be compromised by like, okay, we have to, we can do this practically, or we can build this set, or if, if that's what you want for a scene, it's like, we really want to build this. Oh, we can't afford it. Let's shoot it on location. And then there's some sort of compromise involved. But but um, sometimes, you know, like you you do that anyway. You, you Like like here, you, you build it or you, shoot it on stage if you want to or or on location if you want to depends what it is right but but i would say um the the philosophy of how to use the budget was really good on this film and it could be on other films too it's just this also had more budget so that was that was exciting to to be able to 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 shoot it the way that it was you know, that it, we, it we think be. it should be. Yeah, yeah exactly. 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 Well, the film is awesome. Um, I'm sure all of you guys watching have either seen it or planned to, and you will not be let down. No time to die. It's in theaters now. And um, of course, I'll put links to all the things we talked about in the show notes, including Linus's IMDb. And we're talking about, I mean, we're talking about some pretty substantial films here. American Hustle, First Man, La La Land. Um, it, it just goes on and on. And Please, if you haven't already been enjoying his films, you can go and check them out for yourself. And also, when you did, you shot Joy. Did you shoot Joy as well? Yeah. So you were, ba- one of your scenes was right outside my windows over here. My office is no in ha- was in Haverhill, Massachusetts. And that's where I'm recording this from. And you did w- one shot of like our uh, our big sort of old, old style looking downtown. And yeah. it was like the talk of the town here in Haverhill that there was a, a oh, big motion awesome. picture coming in. So, yeah, I mean, I I see that scene every single day when I pass that street. <laughs> so, <laughs> That's amazing. Somewhere. I know. So I feel we have, if only I knew you then, we could have done some behind the scenes work, but it exactly. is what it is. Amazing. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so everybody, please go and check out Linus's work. We'll put links to it in the show notes. Linus, thank you so much for joining us today. I hope you had a good time. The conversation was awesome. And we'll have to have you back. Thank you so much. All right, I want to thank Lena Sandgren, director of photography for No Time to Die. Go and see that movie. It is awesome. And finally, it's out after a long, long delay. So go out there, support it. It's so, so good. You guys are going to love it. I also want to thank our our sponsor, our producer, Connor Crosby. You can find him at ignitionvisuals.com and Dave Siegel from siegelsound.com. He mixes and masters and makes the show sound so good. You can reach out to us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and of course, YouTube, where you can see our episodes. If you're listening to us on your favorite podcast app, great. Um, Certainly continue to do that. Hit subscribe so you never miss an episode. And you can find us on all of your favorite podcast apps by searching Go Creative Show. 
All things Go Creative Show at gocreativeshow.com. And if you're interested in what I'm doing, you can check out my Instagram at Ben Consoli, at Ben Consoli, where I post all about the work that I do on um, different projects around here, commercial work, uh, videos, live events, all of it. It's all there at my Instagram at Ben Consoli. Thank you for joining us today. And we will see you on another episode of Go Creative Show next week. I screwed up that ending. Oh, well, what are you going to do? Thank you. Thank you for joining us today. And we'll see you next week on another episode of the Go Creative Show, a podcast for filmmakers.